First of all, uh, hello everyone and welcome to our second session of the theoretical uh, fixed review course. Since this is our second uh, session of the review course, uh, allow me to introduce myself again. And uh, for our new attendees uh, for this time, I'm Dr. Shayma Deshti, senior surgeon in Amiri Hospital, Kuwait. I'm the co-founder of, uh, uh, I think, I don't know if you are hearing me well, because it's showing that my internet connection is slow. Can you hear me? Yeah, we can hear you. Okay. I can hear you. Okay. So, uh, Surgery Kuwait is a Kuwait association of surgeon team is specialized in providing virtual surgical education to surgical residents. Uh, we have announced the surgical fixed review course to be our first education service. It's a series of 29 online interactive live sessions through the uh, Zoom application. Uh, the surgical review course is targeting all level of surgical residents with a special focus on R5 residents. At the end, it should cover the most important objectives that uh, will benefit an R5 level uh, for their upcoming exam. Uh, today, we have uh, two special guests. Our first guest, Dr. Salman Asabah. Dr. Salman is a consultant surgeon and the chairman of uh, surgery department in Jabir al-Ahmed Hospital. Uh, he is the president of Kuwait Association of Surgeons and assistant professor in Kuwait University and the advisor of American chapter of surgery in Kuwait. So I will grab this opportunity and ask Dr. Salman Sabah to share with us her thoughts and opinion about this surgical review course and to give uh, uh, advice to our surgical residents on uh, how to, to cope or how to keep up with their learning uh, needs, especially during this uh, pandemic of COVID-19. And at the end, to uh, introduce our second guest and the speaker of this session today. So, Dr. Salman Sabah, the mic is yours. Okay. Assalamu uh, alaikum. Good evening or good morning, wherever you are. Thank you, Shayma, for uh, facilitating and organizing this kind of meeting. It's very challenging time uh, with, uh, with the situation with Corona for everyone. And education also is, is very challenging at this time, especially for the surgical residents. And I think this kind of uh, uh, education way, I think it's important that we utilize you know, all what we have to make sure that we can uh, give you uh, knowledge and information that will help you during your, whether during your training or whether during your work. Uh, also, I'd like to thank Dr. Hani Al-Ghadi, uh, who is the uh, chairman of surgery at from Oman, and uh, thank you for being here with us today. And Dr. Hani, I mean, he has a lot of, uh, I would say, uh, uh, collaboration with us in Kuwait and as well as many other countries and. Uh, we, we really welcome you on this platform, and we hope that uh, we learn from you today and uh, keep this ongoing event uh, for education for our part of the world. Um, Dr. Hani is a senior consultant in trauma surgery and medical specialty, board and head of surgery department at Sultan Qaboos University. Uh, welcome with us, uh, Dr. Hani, and uh, I think uh, on behalf of my colleague in, in Kuwait Association of Surgeons,
Uh, we welcome all of you here with us in this platform and we wish you all the best and be safe with, uh, with what's happening with the coronavirus uh, at this time. And also uh, make sure that you use this opportunity and time uh, to, uh, to help your people as well as educate yourself as much as possible. Uh, it's very challenging again, and I hope that we can all learn from these events and utilize them to our uh, benefit. Uh, be safe, and I wish you all the best. And uh, inshallah, azma uh, and and mubarak alaykum al-shahar, or mubarak alaykum al-fatwaqa min al-shahar, wa kul am tu khair, al-eid ma bqala shay, inshallah, atmalna Allah yqabal minkum kullukum. And we wish you all the best, and uh, and we are always here to support and be with you. So, Shayma, uh, you can, I guess, uh, uh, take over and I uh, will be around and uh, if you have any questions or any more details uh, we'll be around inshallah. Thank you Dr. Salman, thank you for these comments. Uh, now before just Dr. Hani start his session I, I just like to give you small hints how this uh, session will go. We have uh, during the sessions Dr. Hani might ask uh, a few questions you can comment on the chat uh, panel and also you have the question and answer panel where you can uh, raise questions directly to Dr. Hani for people who does not want to share their mic uh, at the end of the session. Uh, other thing, Dr. Hani, uh, at the end of the, se the session will uh, uh, will also give some uh, questions and CQs where you can participate directly through the polls in this room. So, Dr. Hani, uh, I think now you can start your session, but. I also would like to highlight that the number of attendees until now are 277, and I'm sure more people will join within this few minutes. So thank you, Dr. Hani, for accepting our invitation, and uh, you can start your session. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Salman Sabah and Dr. Shayma and uh, the organizers of this session. Uh, it's an honor to be uh, with you, uh, uh, our Kuwaiti uh, uh, colleagues and friends brothers and sisters, uh, and I hope that this session is uh, going to be of benefit to everybody. Um, uh, I'm trying to share the screen, uh, but it says I'm disabled to share the screen. Can I be enabled to share the screen? Uh, okay, I'll just check the... Okay, now you can check Dr. Hani again. I think now... Perfect, yes, it's working, perfect. Can everybody see this? Is it? Yeah, that's good, yeah. Okay, perfect. All right, so we have a lot of slides to go through today. We have a lot of things to cover. Um, uh, this is uh, our university, Sultan Qaboos University in Oman, and this is uh, beautiful Oman. So if you haven't visited Oman, please uh, make sure that you visit uh, once all this uh, fiasco of coronavirus is over. Um, we'll go over the objectives over this of this, um, uh, session, uh, we'll talk a little bit about the, what a trauma team is. Then we're going to go through a primary and secondary survey in detail. Uh, and then uh, we'll talk about the disposition of the patient. How are you going to dispose the patient after you uh, have finished? Uh, I'm going to be a little bit fast. Uh, so if you want me to slow down or if you have any questions, uh, please uh, don't hesitate to put it in the chat. I'll be, uh, my eye will be one eye on the slides and the other eyes on the chat. So. I'll try to as, uh, answer as many questions as you guys uh, have. So the trauma team, basically, the, the 
ideal team consists of five doctors, uh, the trauma team leader, uh, and then we have uh, four other doctors ideally, but you can, um, you can assign two roles to a doctor instead of five, you can have like four or three, but these are the roles of the trauma team members. One is to intubate, another uh, doctor to put tubes and chest tubes and central lines and etc. cetera. Uh, another doctor is in charge of radiology ordering and tracing the results of the x-rays and the CT scan. And finally, a documentation, which is usually the medical student. Um, we also have trauma nurses. Uh, we usually have three, three trauma nurses. Uh, the ideal number is three. One is for documentation, one is for medications, and the other one is for lines and cannulas. And then we have activation criteria. So there, in every trauma center, there should be activation criteria as to when to call the trauma team uh, to which patient, because trauma team should not be called for every single trauma that comes to the emergency department. Um, it's an organized approach, uh, and it fits large centers and rural center, centers also. So it can be, it doesn't have to be a, a big, uh, a fancy hospital to uh, implement the trauma team system. And it's been validated everywhere. So this is uh, the most actually important slide of the whole presentation. Uh, this is basically uh, a guide to, uh, to answer any situation, especially for the R5s who are going for the exams. Um, whenever you are called and given a scenario of a patient who is crashing, um, you should memorize these five points and uh, mention these five points when you're asked. So the first thing you do, so for example, it's a post-op patient, they call you to the ward, post-op patient who's hypotensive or who's uh, short of breath uh, or a patient in the emergency department who's in septic shock, what do you do? So instead of um, going all over the place, just make sure you memorize these five points and mention them almost always in any patients in shock. So first of all, you attach the patient to a monitor. You give him 100% or her, you give him or her 100% oxygen. You start uh, two large bore cannulas or IV access. So instead of saying large bore, large bore, uh, you say as an R5, you should say what kind of large bore you, you mean. So you always go for 16 gauge or 18 gauge or 14 gauge cannulas, and you put them in big veins. So anticubital fossa is the best place to uh, start the lines. After you insert the cannulas, you need to send trauma uh, labs or uh, blood work. So that is complete blood count, EBC, coagulation, and cross match. So these three things uh, are a must uh, in trauma. You can also send the other uh, uh, investigations like uh, uh, like uh, electrolytes or LFT or tox screen, whatever you want. But these three are the most essential uh, trauma apps. So remember the CCC, CBC, crossmatch, and coagulation profile. And finally, after you draw the blood for investigations, you give the patient one liter IV bolus of fluid you want to give rectus lactate or normal saline. Uh, that is, uh, it doesn't really matter because the bolus is mainly to expand the volume of the um, the, of, the, of the patient, the intravascular volume. So it doesn't really matter what IV fluid, unless there is a specific contraindication to any of the fluids. But in general, for boluses, we just go with normal saline. So if you memorize these five points, uh, and you can, you can mention them in any uh, agency, not just trauma, but any shock, uh, whether you're in medicine, pediatrics, surgery, or gynae, or uh, any other discipline. So, um, so let's say you get a trauma patient. So the first thing you do is you want to take a focused history 
um, and uh, you start your primary survey. So remember the primary survey is the A, B, C, D, E. Um, the primary survey focuses on life-threatening conditions. So we don't really uh, look at uh, 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 small uh, injuries or injuries that even they're not small, but um, they're not life, immediately life-threatening. So always think, what is going to kill this patient in the next five minutes? You have to address, identify and address these uh, life-threatening conditions first. Um, so the first thing you do is you make sure that the patient has a C-spine collar if it's a blunt trauma. Blunt trauma means fall, car, car crash, uh, or uh, if a pedestrian hit by a car or a cyclist hit by a car. Um, so you make sure that the patient has a C-spine collar on. Then you talk to the patient. If the patient is talking, his airway is good, move on. You can move on to the B. If the patient is not talking, then you open the mouth, inspect. If there is any vomit or blood, you suction it, and then you, you do a chin lift in order to bring the tongue forward. The thing that you should not do is no finger sweeping. If you find any foreign body inside the mouth, you pick it up with a force. You do not put your finger inside the patient's mouth, and you don't do the head tilt to bring the, chi the, the tongue forward because the C-spine precautions, so you don't tilt the head in uh, trauma but you can do that in other emergencies except trauma. And then uh, early definitive airway is, is, is always in your mind. What is definitive airway? Definitive airway means a tube in the trachea, inside the trachea, and with a cuff inflated or balloon inflated. So that's the meaning of definitive airway. Any other airway is not called a definitive airway. So always think of when should I uh, put the definitive airway? Because uh, you, don't, uh, you don't want to put your finger in the mouth uh, and sweep. So the, the question is, what is the logic behind not putting the finger, moving the forward body with your hand? Because if you put your finger inside the patient's mouth, imagine you put your finger in anybody's mouth, they can vomit. And if, when they're lying flat, they vomit, they aspirate, they die. So trauma patients, they don't forgive you if you make mistakes, they die. They are unforgiving uh, patients, means they don't forgive your mistakes. Uh, so if you put your finger inside the patient's mouth, mouth, first of all, you can in induce vomiting. The other thing is you can actually push the, 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 the foreign body uh, inside uh, more. So it is totally prohib prohibited to put your finger inside the patient's mouth. I hope I answered your question. Now, let's talk about definitive airway. So when are you going to intubate the patient? What are the indications to intubate the patient in trauma? So these are the indications. First of all, airway obstruction. So if there's a clear airway obstruction, the patient is struggling to breathe. Um, uh, that is clear indication to intubate the patient. The second one is impending airway obstruction. That means the patient is not obstructed now but you anticipate that this is going to obstruct his or her way in the next five minutes or so. So which patients will have an impending airway obstruction? So we talk about patients who are burn patients. If you have a patient who was involved in a, in a, in a fire, uh, yeah, exactly, burn patients. So patients who are inhaling smokes. So if they have any signs of inhalation injury on the face, like burned facial hair, uh, black sputum uh, or, uh, uh, or singed skin, burnt skin. That means the fire was very close to the face. 
So even if they're talking or singing, it doesn't matter. You intubate these patients. The thing is, if you don't intubate them now and the airway swells because of the inhalation injury, then you cannot in intubate them later on and they might die on you uh, unless you establish a airway. So uh, other patients, exactly. Somebody said neck hematoma. Excellent. That's a very good um, indication. So if you have a patient with a neck hematoma that is expanding, 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 so even though he's not obstructed now, he can be obstructing his airway uh, very, very soon. So make sure that to anticipate uh, what's going to come. So a good, a good surgeon and a good trauma surgeon always is two steps ahead of the patient. Uh, and besides, if you intubate the patient, and the patient didn't really require intubation, it doesn't matter, you can extubate the patient later. While on the other hand, if you don't intubate a patient who required an intubation, the patient will die if you don't intubate them. So that's why we err always to the, to the, to the side of intubating patients. And we have a very low threshold in trauma to intubate patients. Uh, the third thing is respiratory failure. So respiratory failure mean, mainly hypoxia because the patient is hypoventilating or inhaled uh, some kind of uh, carbon monoxide or something. So uh, if the patient is hypoxic, you intubate the patient. The fourth uh, indication is low GCS. Low GCS means severe, severe head injury. So we always say glasgocoma scale uh, score next, uh, less than nine. Uh, less than nine indicates severe head injury. Now, why do we need to intubate these patients? We don't intubate, we, we intubate these patients because these patients cannot protect their airway. It has nothing to do with respiratory depression. Even if they're breathing on their own, they cannot protect their airway, they cannot cough. So any saliva, any secretion can go into the airway and cause aspiration pneumonia. And remember, if they aspirate, they die. They don't go into complications, they die. Remember, they do not forgive you, they do not forgive mistakes. So if the patient has a low GCS, less than nine, we intubate these patients. Another thing is, if the patient had, for example, initial GCS was 12, and now the GCS is nine, so it is deteriorating rapidly, you don't have to really wait until the GCS reaches eight. So if you see a rapidly deteriorating GCS, you intubate the patient prophylactically, okay? And finally, uh, if you want to control the patient, that is, if the patient is, for example, um, drunk or uh, high on drugs or confused, and the patient is combative, you can sedate them with haloperidol, but if the patient is not sedatable, then you can intubate these patients. So what we do is we intubate these patients, uh, do whatever we want, like we take them to CT scan, finish scanning them, extraying them, uh, putting cast and everything, and then we bring them back to the emergency department and then extubate them. They don't have to go to the ICU with the intubation. And finally, of course, patients who are in severe injury, uh, fracture, uh, manipulation in the emergency department, and you think that this patient is going to be in severe pain, sometimes we intubate these patients in order to relieve them of their misery. And then after we fix their uh, fractures in the emergency department, splint them or whatever we want to do, uh, we, you can extubate them later on. So control of patient, of patient is, is another indication to intubate patients. So these are the five main indications to intubate trauma patients. If you have any questions, let me know. Um, so once you have decided to intubate this patient, in trauma, 
those patients do not come NPO. They are not fasting. They actually, whenever we scan them, they always have a full stomach. I don't know why, before they go into accidents. Um, so uh, we, when you intubate these patients, they are at very high risk of vomiting and aspirating while intubation. So we developed, uh, or you know, the trauma uh, in charge people developed what they call a rapid sequence intubation, or they call it now drug assisted intubation, uh, which is the same thing. And basically it has seven P's. The first P is plan B. Plan B means you prepare for uh, 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 the surgery, just in case the plan A fails, you already are ready to, 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 do a, to get a surgical airway. The surgical airway that we always prefer is cricothyroidotomy. So make sure you have the cricothyroidotomy set next to you in the emergency department, uh, because you, know, you don't want to be looking for the uh, cricothyroidotomy set when you already have paralyzed the patient and you know, uh, you're, ready, you're ready to intubate that you have already paralyzed the patient. So you, you know, let's say the intubation has failed, you don't wanna go running around and sending people to get you the, the instruments from the OR and everywhere. So make sure that the instruments are available next to you before you intubate. Then we pre-oxygenate the patient. So that means we give them oxygen and they reach 100% saturation. And then we pre-medicate them. So what is pre-medication? Pre-medication are divided into two main categories. The first category are um, true pre-medications like atropine, we give it to children uh, if they go into a bradycardia because children below the age of 10, they do get uh, exaggerated vagal uh, response to intubation and they can become very bradycardic don't have to give them uh, prophylactically to everybody, but you have to make sure that you have an atropine ampule next to you before you intubate children uh, below the age of 10. Uh, the other drug is lidocaine. Lidocaine, uh, we give it to patients with head injury before we intubate them because uh, it suppresses the, the, ref, uh, the reflux where, uh, where uh, or the reflex, sorry, the reflex that causes increased intracranial pressure. Uh, so some, some patients, when you intubate them, uh, they have a reflex that increases the intracranial pressure. So uh, if they have head injury and you're worried about the intracranial pressure, you give them lidocaine IV, um, so about 100 milligrams IV lidocaine before you intubate them. So 100 milligrams lidocaine if you have head injury. If you don't have head injury, you don't have to give any lidocaine. And then after you give that, so you have prepared the patient for intubation, now you need to induce them. You need to make them go to sleep. So induction agent, I divided them into two main categories. Etomidate and ketamine is one category. And all these drugs, propofol, thiopentol, midazolam, morphine, fentanyl, is another category. Why? Any idea why do we have these two categories? Excellent, BP safe, excellent. So etomidate and ketamine, does not, they do not drop your blood pressure. Uh, the others cause hypotension. So if you have an anesthetist as part of your uh, trauma team, be careful because anesthetists, they love propol. If you see them carrying anything that looks like milk, stop them and tell them, no, I want etomidate, I don't want propofol. So we usually go with etomidate, that's 20 milligrams. 
So lidocaine 100 and etomidate 20. Once the patient is uh, asleep, then you have to uh, paralyze the patient. And we use succinylcholine. It's a fast-acting um, paralytic agent. So pa uh, succinylcholine 100 milligrams. So if the patient has head injury, 100 lidocaine, 20 etomidate, 100 sucks. So 100, 20, 100. Remember that. If no head injury, 20, 100. 20 etomidate, 100 succinylcholine. Okay? So it's very easy to remember the medications. There's not a lot of medications that you have to remember for trauma. Um, uh, so uh, these are the medications that you, you should be uh, memorizing. Uh, lidocaine, etomidate, and succinylcholine. Okay? 100, 20, 100. Then after you have paralyzed the patient, you ask somebody to put, so you open the C-spine collar and you ask somebody to pressure the trachea. So it's burp, means backwards, upwards, and to the right pressure, okay? Why? Because you want to bring the trachea into the vision of whoever is intubating because it's anterior, you want to push it posterior so that the patient, can, the, the intubator can see the vocal cords. The other reason is that you want to occlude the esophagus uh, when you push it uh, backwards, upwards, and to the right, okay? Then you pass the tube, finally you check the position of the, of the endotracheal tube by checking the uh, CO2 uh, on your monitor, by doing a chest x-ray, auscultating both lungs. Uh, there are so many uh, ways of uh, checking the position on, uh, uh, in the patient after you intubate the patient. So these are the seven P's, uh, always remember them. Uh, and uh, and uh, make sure if you're running a trauma, make sure that people adhere to these steps because people in trauma panic and they skip some of these steps. So this is a picture from the internet, actually. This is not my patient. Um, so if you see a um, uh, patient has a stab in the neck, would you remove this, um, this, uh, this knife from the patient's neck? Excellent. So never remove knives, okay, from any patient, whether neck, head, abdomen, airway, anywhere. Never remove it until you go to the operating room. Not only you don't remove it, you actually pad it, okay? So we put a cushion around it and we stabilize the, the, the knife. Now you take the patient to the, to the operating room and after you have scrubbed and uh, uh, draped uh, and, and prepped the patient, then you ask the, doc, the, the anesthetist to intubate the patient. So don't intubate the patient and don't induce the patient until you have already, you're ready to go in. So we paint the patient, we drape the patient, we, we, we all wear the, the, the gowns and the gloves and we are ready to go. Then you ask the anesthetist to intubate the patient. Once he does intubate the patient, then you go and remove the knife and get ready to uh, open uh, the airway, the, the, the neck or whatever cavity the knife is in, whether it's abdomen or neck. Excellent, yes, okay. So this is my patient who actually tried to uh, attempt suicide, uh, but he was very, very bad in attempting suicide. So he basically slashed his throat and you can see it's actually, it looks bad, it's all blood, all this black um, uh, things on his uh, face and neck. This is actually uh, uh, bl uh, dried blood. And you can see this is the, the trachea and there's a black hole here. He actually made his own uh, cricothyroidotomy. 
or trache tracheostomy. Um, so would you intubate this patient in the emergency department or in the operating room? Okay, so we're split between operating and OR. So basically he has no airway obstruction. Okay, he has no airway obstruction. Even though it looks very bad, you don't really have to uh, intubate him in the emergency department, okay? It looks bad, but it's not life-threatening. He actually made his own surgical airway, so you don't need to intubate the patient. Uh, so we took this patient to the emergency, to the OR. As you can see, there's a, an oxygen mask. There is no intubation there. We, of course, prepped and draped and then intubated the patient, and we looked inside. There was actually a clean cut. He was like a surgeon. He cut himself very well. Uh, he did not know how to commit suicide properly. Then we gave him some instructions how to do it properly next time. Uh, so uh, this is airway. I uh, hope we are done with anything. Uh, any questions in airway before we move on to breathing? No. Okay. So breathing uh, basically is you want to examine the lungs, the chest and the lung for uh, life-threatening conditions. Okay. So what do we do? We look, we first of all inspect the symmetry of the chest movement. If there is any evidence of flail chest or any wounds in the chest that are, we call them the sucking chest wounds. And then you auscultate. Now remember, when you auscultate, you're looking for tension pneumothorax. We're, we're going to go, this is, this is what you are looking for. Tension pneumothorax, massive hemothorax, flail chest, and massive lung contusion. These are the life-threatening conditions in the lung and the breathing. Uh, so if you're gonna auscultate, this is not the time that you auscultate the nine zones and look for consolidation here and consolidation here. You just want to know if there is air entry or there is no air entry. Is it tension pneumothorax or not tension pneumothorax? I'm not looking for small pneumothorax. I'm not looking for collapse, uh, basal lung collapse. That, that, that's not the time now. You just want to make sure that there is some kind of air entry. So if there's good air entry, you just need one auscultation on here and one auscultation on the other side. If there is air entry, move on, okay? So uh, these are the, the, the conditions that we look for. Um, uh, Post-operatively after repair of the trachea. After repair of, of the trachea, we keep them for a couple of days um, what we do is we intubate the patient. So the question is, after you repair the trachea, so if somebody comes with a tracheal laceration, uh, how, do you, how long do you keep the patient intubated? So what we do is we intubate the patient with the cuff inflated, and when the patient is ready to be extubated on the ventilator, what we do is we, we do something called the leak test. What is that leak test? You deflate the balloon of the endotracheal tube, and you see if there is air leaking, that's a good sign, that's not a bad sign. That means there is no edema of the airway. That means the tube is not, um, uh, is not, the airway is not tight around the tube. So what you do, usually the tube, there's, there's a balloon around the tube. Now you deflate that balloon. If there is leak, then that's a good sign. Then you can extubate the patient. If there is no leak, that means you need to keep the patient intubated. That means the airway is still edematous and swollen. So when do we do that? We do that after, 24 to 48 hours, you don't need to keep them intubated for a long, long time. I hope I answered your question. So uh, let's go back to breathing. 
So uh, these are the four conditions that we, uh, that we look for, tension pneumothorax, massive hemothorax, flail chest, and massive lung contusion. So let's look at tension pneumothorax. So everybody knows what tension pneumothorax is. The reason for tension pneumothorax uh, can be two reasons. One is that air is escaping from a hole in the lung. And the air is keep on, the, the, the hole is, is open and the air keeps on leaking and then it accumulates inside the chest and then pushes the mediastinum and deviates the mediastinum and causes positive intrathoracic pressure because of the pressure. Just like uh, air leak from the, continuous air leak from the lung. This is one way and this is the most common cause of tension pneumothorax. The other cause of tension pneumothorax is what we call a sucking chest wound. What is that sucking chest wound? Usually after a stab wound to the chest, what happens is if the patient is stabbed, the muscle, it's not an open, it's not the open pneumothorax. It's called a, a sucking chest wound. It's different from open pneumothorax. So basically what happens, a muscle flap is created because of the, of the, of the stab. So when you take a, an inspiration, so you create a, a negative pressure inside the chest. So that flap opens and it sucks air from outside. Then when you exhale, that flap closes and then it, it retains the, the air inside the, the lung. And it keeps on sucking and retaining, sucking and retaining, sucking. So that's called the sucking chest wound, okay? Not the paradox. Paradox is something else. We'll talk about it later. This is called a sucking chest wound. Sucking chest wound is basically a flap of muscle or pleura that keeps on going in and opening the, the hole from the knife, sucking the air during inspiration. And then it does not expel the air during expiration because it closes down. It acts like a valve, basically. Okay? This is different from an open chest wound. Open chest wound is just an open chest wound. The air goes in and out. Okay? That's different. Paradox is coming in the flail chest, not in the, not in the tension pneumothorax. So why does tension pneumothorax, why is it a problem? It is basically a form of obstructive shock. The other two obstructive shocks are pulmonary embolism and cardiac tamponade, okay? The third one is tension pneumothorax. So what happens? There is a positive pressure inside the chest. That penis return to the heart is reduced. So the preload going to the heart is reduced. And then because of the kink of the pushed mediastinum, there is higher resistance to the, to the, uh, to the outflow uh, in the aortic uh, valve. That means the afterload higher. So there's high afterload and low or decreased preload. And if you look at the Frank-Sterling curve, this is the stroke volume. And if you have increased afterload, you drop down your stroke volume. That means you drop, you drop down your cardiac output and it causes shock. Uh, usually, in, in, in different, in normal people, when you have a, a high afterload, like patients with hypertension or coarctation, what happens is the preload increases, okay? The preload increases to compensate for the uh, high afterload. But in this case, you have a low preload. So you have a low preload and high afterload and that's why they go into shock very quickly. I hope, uh, I, hope I explained it very well. Okay, so uh, Mazin, I think I just explained the difference between sucking chest wound and open pneumothorax. 
Open pneumothorax is just a big hole in the chest, like a gunshot or something. This is just a big hole. It's just open. You can see the lung. The sucking chest wound, there is a flap of muscle that, that sucks the air during inspiration and locks during expulsion. Excellent. Thank you. Okay. So I hope you understand why uh, do patients with tension pneumothorax develop a shock. Okay. Excellent. So what do you do? I think everybody knows this. You put a needle once you diagnose tension pneumothorax and it diagnoses clinical, not by x-ray. Um, so you put a needle in the fifth intercostal space anterior to the mid-axillary line, okay, or between the anterior and the mid-axillary line, so somewhere here, fifth intercostal space. And remember, yes, needle decompression, excellent. Remember the sizes of the chest tube, you have to remember them. There are 28, 32, or 36, they go by four. 28, before that, 24, 28, 32, 36. Okay, and, and the bigger the number, the bigger the size of the chest tube, unlike the cannula. Uh, the cannula, the bigger the number, the smaller the size. But chest tubes, the bigger the number, the bigger the size. And 36 French, what, do we, what, what does it mean? Not the second, it was the second, now it's the fifth intercostal space. Amen. Um, so, uh, so uh, 28, 32, or 36, uh, French, that means, what does it mean? That means you divide this number by pi, which is 3.14, and it gives you the internal diameter of the chest tube. So roughly 32 French uh, by, divided by 3.14, which is pi, roughly gives you a 10 millimeter. That's the internal diameter of the chest tube. The bigger the, the size, the bigger the chest tube. And you insert it in the same place where you inserted uh, the, the needle uh, thoracostomy or just below it or just above it, it doesn't matter. And remember to go above the rib, not below the rib when you insert. Now, this is a chest X-ray. Can you guys give me the diagnosis in this chest X-ray? Yes, not pneumothorax, right? Tension pneumothorax, okay? You can see this is the tension pneumothorax. You can see the lung, the right lung is collapsed. Tension pneumothorax, excellent. And you can see that the mediastinum is pushed to the left side, okay? So this is what I'm talking about. Positive pressure here decreases the preload. Kinking of the mediastinum increases the afterload, and then you, the result is shock, okay? Now, of course, you never diagnose tension pneumothorax on a chest X-ray, so whoever ordered that chest X-ray is a bad physician. Uh, so once, if you diagnose tension pneumothorax on a, on a chest x-ray, you hide the x-ray because it shows that you're a bad person. Okay, good. So next is massive hemothorax. Okay, so what is massive hemothorax? So when you put the chest tube, you, 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 put, you, you, you draw blood. So blood comes out of the chest tube. You see how much blood is coming out. So if it's 1.5 of blood immediately, you see that. That is the definition, massive hemothorax. Then let's say, for example, you don't get 1.5 meters, 500 ml or 600 ml. Then what you do is you monitor the output of the chest tube for the next four hours. How much is coming out from this chest tube in the next four hours? So if it is more than 250 ml per hour for the next four hours, then that is also massive hemothorax. What do you mean by that? So the hour is 300 ml, the second hour is 400 ml, the third hour is 300 ml, and the uh, fourth hour is 275 ml. So all in four hours, it is up to 150 ml output. Then that is by definition 
tension, a massive hemothorax. And finally, hemodynamic abnormality. So if you, you get 700 ml of blood and the patient is hemodynamically abnormal, then most likely it is a massive hemothorax. Treatment massive hemothorax, we either take them to angio and embolize the intercostal, because most common cause of hemothorax is uh, intercostal artery bleed. So you embolize that intercostal artery, or if not, if you don't have facility of angioembolization in your hospital, you take the patient to surgery and you open the chest and you suture the, um, the artery close. Now, uh, this is a patient, a trauma patient, and you can see the x-ray here. What do you see on the right side? Opacity, excellent. So, you know, it will not look like hemothorax to you, but this is how hemothorax looks like when the patient is lying flat. Uh, ideally, if fusion looks like the meniscus sign and the, the, the cost of reading angle is obliterated, but this is when the patient is sitting upright. Remember, trauma patients are always supine. So blood distributes behind the lung. So what you see actually is like a white or opacified lung. That is, the, that is how hemothorax looks like. So it is, you can mix, mix up between a massive lung contusion and hemothorax on an x-ray, but you should be very suspicious of hemothorax if you see a white lung or a, a hazy opacity behind one of the lungs, okay? So be careful of that. Uh, so that is massive hemothorax. Next is flail chest. So by definition, flail chest is two or more fractures, like these two fractures in three consecutive ribs or more, okay? So two or more fractures in three consecutive ribs or more. Of course, it can be four or five ribs after that, okay? So that is the definition of flail chest. Now, what is, what is the... Uh, what is the problem with flail chest? Why is it a problem? Why, why do we, why is it life-threatening? Paradoxical breathing, okay. More? Anything more? Pain, 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 pain. Yes, pain. Okay. So actually, all books uh, say paradoxical chest movement is a problem. I have never seen paradoxical chest movement in all the flail chest I've seen in my life. I have never seen this paradoxical chest movement. Uh, I think in my opinion, and I asked all my colleagues, none of them has seen this paradoxical chest movement. I think there's one video on YouTube that shows it, but I, I, have, I have not seen it myself and my colleagues have not seen it. But imagine two fractures in three ribs minimum, huh? So minimum, yeah, six fractures, minimum. Six rib fractures, right? Yeah, very good, send me the video. So, uh, so what happens, imagine you trying to breathe with six rib fractures in your, in your, in your chest. You can't. So what you do or what the patient does is they breathe like this. <laughs> that means rapid, shallow breathing. So rapid, shallow breathing, the oxygen saturation can, can be 100%, but the patient cannot maintain this breathing for more than 15, 20 minutes. Then they stop breathing and die. Okay. So it's very important to treat uh, 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 failed chest the main treatment is pain control, okay? It is thoracic epidural, okay? We give them thoracic epidural, not just morphine and fentanyl. No, no, no. All of them get thoracic epidural. At least in our center, we have a protocol. More than two rib fractures, they get automatically a thoracic epidural analgesia, anesthesia. Uh, then chest physio, because remember, 
the force that has fractured six ribs will also go to the lung and cause lung contusion. So you have to do a lot of chest physiotherapy, okay? And then finally, if the patient is not responding, then you intubate the patient because you know, they cannot maintain breathing for a long time. And if they're not doing well, if they're hypoxic, remember one of the indications of intubation was respiratory failure. So that will go into respiratory failure. So you intubate these patients if they do not respond to your pain control and chest physiotherapy. Now recently, uh, rib fixation has come into the picture in trauma. Now it's not the standard of care right now, but for R5s you should know and you should be aware about uh, the surgical fixation of the rib. It's a big, big deal now in North America, especially in Canada. Um, and a lot of trials are coming out. Nothing really, um, uh, yeah, plating. So nothing really to make them the gold standard of treatment, but they're very, very promising results, okay? Now this is a patient, my patient, she is a little Chinese lady who was driving and a big truck, a six-wheeler we call it, uh, hit her from uh, the side, from the left side actually. And you can see the difference between the cavity of the right chest and the cavity of the left chest. The whole left chest has caved in, has gone inside. Uh, and you can see there are multiple rib fractures. Now in this patient, in trauma, we don't have to really have two consecutive, two fractures in three consecutive ribs. Any five rib fractures or more, we treat them like, um, yes, you, you can insert if there is a pneumothorax. You can insert the chest tube if there's a pneumothorax, not just for flail chest. This lady has, a, has had a hemopneumothorax. So we put a chest tube, you can see the chest tube here. Um, and, and, uh, and this lady, actually, this is the only lady that we had to operate on for, uh, for flail chest because one of the ribs actually has, has, has uh, was touching the pericardium. So we had to operate on her to lift the ribs away from the pericardium. We were worried that the ribs will injure the pericardium. And you don't have to put bilateral ICD. You just put, you put the chest tube only if there is pneumothorax. You don't put the chest tube for every single um, flail chest. Should we intubate before chest tube insertion? You mean intention pneumothorax, not inflatable chest. So intention pneumothorax, you put the chest tube and then you, you intubate or you put the needle and intubate. It doesn't really matter uh, because by the time you your intubation, you can put the chest tube quickly. The flare segment at the, yeah, yeah, you proceed. Yeah, you can put, you can put the chest tube um, within the flail segment, it doesn't matter, okay? Now, this is another patient who, who um, uh, this is again my patient. Uh, you can see there's a gunshot wound here on the right side at the back, and the emergency physician has put this chest tube in, and uh, this is his x-ray. Now, what do you see in the x-ray? Where is the bullet? Remember, the, the, the chest tube the, 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 sorry, the, the gunshot was on the right side. Where is the bullet? On the left side, you see here? Yeah. So, and you can see uh, the air over the, um, the muscles, the, the serratus and the pectoralis, sorry, the pectoralis here. Um, and you can see the, 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 the subcutaneous epistema, right? Um, so basically the, the bullet has traveled somewhere here they did not mark where the wound is. I'll talk about marking later on. Uh, so that we, we need to draw the line. We need to know how did this bullet travel. 
Did it travel through the aorta? Did it travel through the um, uh, uh, pericardium? We, we didn't know because the he, they did not mark the wound here. We don't know where the wound is. And you can see the chest tube is in a, a bad is going down, but it doesn't matter. Uh, this patient, we had to, yeah, surgical emphysema. So we had to take this patient emergency to the OR. Um, he had a very bad uh, uh, injury to the, um, to the pulmonary artery. There was a fistula between the pulmonary artery and the main bronchus, and he was basically bleeding into his main bronchus. We tried to mobilize the lung. We twisted the lung. We clamped the, uh, the hilum of the, of the lung, but it was of no avail. The patient eventually uh, passed away with a lot of he was pulling blood from his endotracheal tube. He passed away in the OR. Okay, so uh, let's. This is with breathing. Uh, we'll go over to circulation. If you don't have any question, so basically circulation, you want to assess for major bleeding. So you assess the pulses. You feel the pulses, and remember, you feel the pulses in major arteries. You don't go for the radial artery. So carotid brachial and femoral, that's it. You go for the dorsalis pedis and the popliteal and all these small arteries. We go for the main ones, carotid, brachial, and femoral, right? Then you look at the vital signs and you look if there is any active bleeding. And by rule, uh, if the patient is hypotensive in trauma, the differential diagnosis is either bleeding or bleeding or bleeding, right? So there's no we, we, there could be any other shock later on, but the first three differential diagnoses in your brain that this patient's either bleeding or bleeding or bleeding. Now, where would this patient be bleeding if the patient was in shock? Uh, it has to be a big cavity. So it's either in the chest, abdomen, pelvis, in the long bones, or in the retroperitoneum. Or he could be bleeding out on the floor. So he's bleeding from the scalp laceration, from a wound, uh, an arterial lesion somewhere in the leg or something. So the, 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 the dictum is blood on the floor and five more. Chest, abdomen, pelvis, long bones, and retroperitoneum. Don't forget the retroperitoneum, okay? These are the five cavities that the patient will be bleeding in. Uh, if the, he's not going to die of uh, bleeding into the brain because of shock. He will die from other reasons, from coning on, and so on and so forth. But hypovolemic shock, he will have to be bleeding in one of these five um, cavities or on the floor. Clear? So this is a patient that was, uh, again, my patient. So um, he was shot from, this is, the, this is his thigh, this is his knee, and I'm trying to compress uh, on the bleeder. You can see the bleeder. So the, the bullet came from the lateral side, gone through and through, and went into the other thigh and gone through and through. So he has four wounds one on each side of each thigh. And you can see on this side, he's pouring, pumping blood. It's like a fountain. So where would you press? Where would you apply pressure? Now, we don't like the tourniquet. The tourniquet you can only apply if you have no helping hand. That's the only indication to put a tourniquet. So where are you going to apply pressure in this case? Proximal, very good. So you apply pressure proximal here. Don't apply pressure on the wound itself, okay? Always proximal, because what happens when you injure the artery, the artery retracts, right? So you, you, in the hole, you see the bleeder, but the actual artery is, ha, has retracted upwards. So you always um, apply pressure um, here. 
you know, like proximal to the artery, whatever it is. And remember, pressure, do not put five or six gauze pieces and put a bandage on. That's not pressure. That's not good. That's not effective pressure, okay? They call it pressure dressing. That is nonsense. Pressure is with one finger or two fingers on the artery, okay? So you get your medical student. That is the function of medical students, basically. Your babes, right? So you bring them, you put them there, you put his hand there, you tell them, if you, if you, if you release the pressure, I will fail you, okay? So you have to scare them. Uh, so, and then uh, you move on and, and you hurry, hurry the operating room. Do not put blindly clips and clamps trying to stop the bleeder, just finger or, or, or two finger pressure uh, proximal to the bleeding um, artery, okay? So that is circulation. Then we go to disability. Any questions about circulation? I hope not. Uh, we'll move to disability. So disability basically is neurological disability, okay? So how do we assess this, this, this neurological disability? By the Glasgow Coma Score, and we look at the pupils, we look at the size of the pupils and whether or not they're reactive, okay? So uh, GCS, everybody knows what the GCS is. For all the, uh, the residents who are going for the exam, you need to know your very well because invariably in a surgical exam, they will give you a case of trauma, calculate the Glasgow Coma Score, okay? Um, so just, just remember, sorry. Okay, just remember the uh, Glasgow Coma Score. Now, let's go a little bit in detail of, of how to assess the disability. The main thing that we want to measure in this patient or detect is increased in the intracranial pressure, okay? So what are the signs of uh, increased intracranial pressure? So vomiting is not a sign, okay? Vomiting is a symptom. Remember, the question is what are the signs of increased intracranial pressure? Radicaria is a sign, yes, absolutely, yes. Level of consciousness, maybe, not hypotension, okay? Irregular breathing, Cushing's reflex, right, okay? So these are, so first of all, pupillary dilatation, okay? So if once you see pupillary dilatation, uh, that is, yes, pupilledema, yeah? So hypertension, bradycardia, irregular breathing, excellent. So pupils dilatation first, high blood pressure and bradycardia. So the opposite of shock, shock is hypotension, tachycardia. Cushing reflex is the opposite. Once you see the high, high blood pressure and bradycardia, you suspect increased intracranial pressure. And then papilledema. The reason why I put ex exclamation mark here is because we never, I cannot detect papilledema. But yes, if you have an ophthalmologist with you lying uh, somewhere in the emergency department, bring them and have them look at the pupils. Uh, but I, I, I honestly don't know how to diagnose papilledema, okay? So, and of course, uh, uh, breathing. But usually these patients are intubated. You're right. So, why do we want to know the ICP? Okay, why, why do you want to, why do want the ICP. The main uh, factor here is not the ICP, is not the intracranial pressure. It is the cerebral perfusion pressure. That is the most important factor in, in, in treating uh, head injuries. What is the cerebral perfusion pressure? It's the pressure required to perfuse the brain, okay? Pressure required to perfuse the brain. What is cerebral perfusion pressure? It is your mean arterial pressure minus the intracranial pressure. So 
we need the CPP to be between 60 to 70 in trauma, okay? Normally it's between 50 and 70, but in trauma, we always keep it between 60 and 70. So if the ICP increases, what will happen to the CPP? It will decrease, right? Excellent. It will decrease, yes. So that is the problem here. The problem is not the ICP. The problem is CPP. We need the CPP to be between 60 and 70, okay? So we try as much as possible to bring down the ICP with, with the things that I will tell you how we bring down the ICP. And finally, if we cannot bring down the ICP, what we do is we give inotropes to increase the MAP, okay? So let's say your ICP is, your MAP is 80, which is normal blood pressure, your MAP is 80, but your ICP is 25. That means your CPP is 55, that's not good. You try to bring down the ICP, but you can't bring down the ICP. So what you can do is you can give the patient inotropes, raise the MAP to 90, 90 minus 25, that's 65, it's a good CPP. You get the idea? Yeah. So either reduce the ICP, or if you cannot reduce the ICP, you can just to get a good value or a normal value of cerebral perfusion pressure, right? Now, the ICP, basically, you think of it like uh, the brain is, uh, is basically, um, uh, uh, the, the skull is a closed room, Within the skull, there's the brain, the blood, and the CSF. These three, we increase the map by giving inotropes, Wafa. We give them inotropes, okay? Even though they have a normal blood pressure, but we give them inotropes. Okay, good. So uh, what we do is uh, there is brain, blood, and CSF, right? Now, these brain and blood CSF are living together peacefully. Once one of them increases, it disrupts the balance within the skull and causes increased ICP. So how do we reduce the ICP? By basically bringing down all these three uh, elements, the brain, the blood, and the CSF. So the brain, let's start with the brain. If the patient has brain edema, brain swelling, what do we do? Remember, if you have an, an ankle injury, there's something called RICE, rest, ice, compression, and elevation. The same thing applies to the brain, okay? Rest, how do you rest your brain? by sedating the patient and intubating them, ventilating them, okay? This is once you detect an increase in the ICP. Um, ice, now you apply ice to your ankle to cause vasoconstriction, right? So in the brain, we don't apply ice. So what we do is we hyperventilate the patient. We hyperventilate the patient. We drop we dropped the PCO2 to uh, between 30 and 35. The normal PCO2 is up to 40. Uh, but we bring them down to between 30 and 35. CO2 between 30 and 35, yes, we wash up the CO2. Then it causes vasoconstriction. So that is the ice. Now, C is for compression. You compress your ankle to reduce the edema. How do we reduce the edema? Either we give mannitol, which is a diuretic, but the mannitol, we cannot give it if the patient is hypotensive because it will worsen the hypotension. So in that case, you give hypertonic saline, mannitol or hypertonic saline um, to reduce the edema and also oxygenate the patient properly because if, if the patient becomes hypoxic, becomes more edematous. So you want to make sure that the patient is not hypoxic. And finally, elevation. Just like you elevate your, your ankle when you have an ankle sprain, we elevate the head of the bed. So this is just for you to remember 
the ways that we can reduce the brain edema. Sedation ventilation, hyperventilation, manitol hypertonic saline, oxygenate the patient, and head elevation. There is no role of steroids, Mariam. Never, ever, 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 ever give steroids for patients with injury. Okay? Now, uh, reducing the ICP also can, we'll talk about blood. So blood, basically, there's a hematoma in the brain that is compressing the brain. Basically, the treatment is surgery. If that hematoma is causing a mass effect, then we, we do a craniotomy and we evacuate the hematoma. We'll look at some images afterwards. And finally, the CSF. The CSF is the weakest link in the brain. What we do is we put a drain through the skull into the ventricle. We call it the ventriculostomy drain. And we drain the CSF out. We just empty the CSF, whether there is hydrocephalus or no hydrocephalus, the CSF goes out. Okay? At the time, that drain, we attach it to a pressure transducer so we can actually measure the ICP. We have a number so we can calculate the CPP. So now you have the map and you have a number on the ICP. And then, so it's very easy to calculate MAP minus ICP equals, and then you know if the CPP is good or not. Okay, is that clear, everybody? Yes, Monroe Kelly, excellent, Rokaya. Yes, Monroe Kelly doctrine, yes. Okay, so uh, clear, perfect. So let's look at the, uh, the difference between epidural and subdural. Uh, you, you, yeah, you, you, you do all three. If you have a, a massive subdural hematoma or epidural hematoma, you do all three, okay? You reduce the brain edema, you evacuate the blood, and you put a ventriculostomy drain. So ventriculostomy drain, on almost all patients with severe head injury, we put a ventriculostomy drain because we want to measure the ICP. We want to have a number of the ICP, not just imagine what the ICP is, okay? So the difference between, this is a very common question between epidural and subdural. Epidural is arterial bleeding comes from a fracture, usually with a fracture of the skull. The, the subdural is venous because the brain is, uh, sh they shake and there are uh, bridging veins between the brain and the dura and these veins they get uh, torn and then you get a subdural hematoma. The epidural hematoma does not cross, cross the sutures in the skull while, because it's above the, the, uh, the, the dura, uh, while in the subdural you see the hematoma crossing the sutures, okay? The brain is intact in the epidural, so it has a better prognosis, but here you usually always get some kind of brain damage, parenchymal damage uh, in the subdural hematoma. This looks like biconvex, and this looks like a crescent shape. We'll have a look at them. And then there's something called the lucid interval. The lucid interval is uh, basically what happens in epidural hematoma. The initial knock causes loss of consciousness because of the concussion. But the brain is okay. Remember, the brain is intact. What happens? This patient wakes up again after losing consciousness. They, they wake up. But what is happening in the brain? The epidural hematoma is increasing and increasing. And then finally, they lose consciousness. So this period of being awake between uh, the, the, the two loss of consciousness is called the lucid interval. And we see that in epidural. We don't see that in subdural hematoma. Because in subdural hematoma, once they lose consciousness, they don't wake up uh, because there's a brain damage. Okay? Yes. Now, what do you think this is? Which one is this? Subdural or epidural? Epi, 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 epi. Excellent. Yes. Uh, one says subdural, but no. It is epidural. So 
as I said, it is biconcave. Uh, remember, it is it is above the dura. Okay, this is the brain here. So it is above the dura. So it's between the dura and the skull, right? Dura is fixed here and fixed here, right? So if you have bleeding here, what will happen is that it will expand inwards because it's it's occluded from both sides and it's bleeding, 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 bleeding. So it will bleed this way, right? While on the other hand, if you look at the subdural, so this is between the brain and the dura, there is no, there's nothing holding the blood here from, from going beyond the, the sutures. So you will find that the, the, the blood spreads along the brain surface and it will look like a crescent shape or biconcave, okay? So this is a, which one is this? This is a subdural, right? And you can see also here there is pneumocephalus, okay, pneumocephalus. That means there's a skull fracture, and there's a shift of the mediastinum of the mediastinum. There's a shift of the midline here, yeah. So uh, this this epidural hematoma is causing a mass effect. So this patient has to go to the operating room. Midline shift, absolutely. This is a, an intracerebral hemorrhage, which is basically a hematoma within the brain, a parenchyma itself. Nothing to do with physiotherapy and supportive care only, even if it's causing mass effect. If anything, if, if you cannot uh, decrease the size of, of the, the brain edema, they can go for decompressive clinectomy, which they remove a flap of bone and let the brain swell. And then uh, when the brain um, swelling goes down, they go back and put the uh, flap again later. So that is it with the... With the, with the with the disability, the exposure, which is the A, basically you expose the patient from head to toe, you avoid hypothermia, make sure the patient is covered all the time, respect the patient privacy, treat all patients like your family, and look for hazardous material like glass or foreign bodies. Then remember, we did not finish the primary survey. We have to uh, get some x-rays to help us diagnose life-threatening conditions. Remember the cavities that we talked about, chest, pelvis, uh, abdomen, long bones, and retroperitoneum. So we need to know if there is any source of, of, of danger in these five cavities. So chest and pelvis, we get a chest x-ray and a pelvis x-ray after the primary survey. The abdomen, to investigate the abdomen, we get a fast only if the patient is hemodynamically abnormal, if he's hypotensive. If the patient is hemodynamically normal, we don't need to do fast. We can take them to CT scan. So we do fast, focused assessment sonography for trauma. Uh, and finally, long bones, you can just, you don't need to examine. Um, uh, yes, uh, TEG, uh, TEG is used, but not in all, all, uh, in all hospitals. It's not readily available everywhere. But yes, it is, it is useful if you have it to, di to direct your, uh, your transfusion and, uh, and uh, what product you give to the patient if you use the TEG uh, uh, machine. No, we don't do lateral cervical x-ray in, 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 in the primary survey. It has no use at all because if the patient has a fracture, you're not going to remove the C-spine, right? You're going to keep the C-spine color. And if the patient doesn't have a C-spine uh, fracture, you're still going to keep the C-spine color until you, you do your uh, eventual imaging. So you're wasting time doing a lateral cervical x-ray uh, after the survey, okay? No, you cannot diagnose retroperitoneal uh, bleeding without the CT scan, uh, but you can, you can guess if everything is normal and uh, the FAST is negative, because FAST doesn't tell you the retroperitoneal injury. So the FAST is negative, chest x-ray is normal, pelvis is normal, and the patient is hypotensive, 
you can anticipate a patient has a retroperitoneal injury or retroperitoneal bleeding, and you can take the patient to the operating room to, to see if there is retroperitoneal injury or not. You do a laparotomy. Uh, that's the only way you diagnose a retroperitoneal injury in a patient who's hemodynamically abnormal. Okay. Now, of course, if you don't have FAST, you do a diagnostic peritoneal lavage, but we don't do diagnostic peritoneal lavage anymore because we have the FAST. Now, the secondary survey is basically examination from head to toe, and then you log roll the patient to the side to examine the back. You examine each vertebra, and you look for step deformities, and then you end up with a rectal exam to see if there is blood or if there is loss of anal tone. Okay? We don't look for high-riding prostates anymore. Don't forget to put the Foley catheter and a 12-lead ECG and put a nasogastric tube if the patient does not have head injury. If the patient has head injury, do not put a nasogastric tube because if, if the patient has a base of skull fracture, it will go directly to the brain. So put an orogastric tube. If you have any, any head injury, put an orogastric tube. It doesn't the patient doesn't have to have raccoon eyes or battle sign. Any head injury, you put an orogastric tube. Now, a little bit about penetrating injury, which is more fun than, uh, than blunt injury. Penetrating injury is either gunshots, okay, like the proper bullet gunshot, shotgun, which is the pellets used for hunting, or stab wounds, which is low velocity. Stab wounds are low velocity, and also shotguns are low, velo low velocity. So it's the same as the primary survey uh, in, in blunt trauma. However, in primary survey for penetrating injury, there is a few uh, differences. One of them is that you immediately remove the C-spine collar. We don't, do, we don't stabilize the C-spine in penetrating injury. Unless there is an element of blunt in it. Like for example, he was shot in a balcony and fell to the floor from the second floor. Okay, then yes, you, you, because there is a blunt injury to it. He was shot in the car and then had a car crash. Then yes, you, you put a C-spine collar. Um, so otherwise, if it's pure uh, stab or pure, pure gunshot, you remove the C-spine collar. There is no role for putting a C-spine collar in these patients. And in C, we add to it is that you have to look for wounds and you label the wounds, okay? You put uh, paper clips, I'll show you later. And finally, you don't label the wound as entry or exit. We will come to it later on. Uh, and in the adjuncts to the primary survey, remember there we put x-ray chest and x-ray pelvis. In, 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 in penetrating, we do an x-ray chest. The other x-ray is to look for the bullets, okay? Uh, so we can do x-ray abdomen, x-ray limb, x-ray neck, uh, just to look for the bullet, where the bullet is, okay? Now, why do we look for the bullet? We need to remove the bullets, okay? We don't remove bullets unless there is indications. But in order to see the trajectory, where did the bullets travel and, and how many bullets are there, okay? And there is a rule actually in, in trauma is that the bullets inside the body, okay, inside the body, not the bullets fired, bullets inside the body, plus the wounds that you find, they have to add up to an even number, okay? An even number means adad zawji, okay? So that means, let's say you have one wound. If you find one wound, then there has to be one bullet inside, right? One plus one equals two. So that's an even number. If you have two wounds, then there are two possibilities. Either two bullets, so two, two bullets inside the body. Huh? So that means two wounds plus two bullets, that means four. Two plus two equals four. 
or there is a bullet that came in and went out and created two, two wounds. So that means if it went out, yeah, if it went out, it's zero, right? So it went out, there's no bullets inside. So zero plus two is two, right? And then uh, if there are three wounds, then there are either one bullet inside or three bullets inside, right? So one, exactly. So one bullet has gone inside and the other has gone in and out, or three bullets has gone, have gone inside. So one plus three is four, and three plus three is six. So always make sure that when you, when you look for wounds, that the wounds plus the bullets that you find on x-rays, they have to add up to an even number. If they add up to an odd number, Adat Fardi, is a problem. You're either missing a wound or missing a bullet. Okay? Is that clear? Very good. Excellent. Now, also remember, indications to remove the bullets, unlike the movies where they, you know, they heat the knife and remove the bullet and the patient's, oh, you saved my life. This is all nonsense. We don't remove bullets unless there's an indication to remove the bullet. Okay? Indications. There are absolute indications and there are rare indications that you might or might not remove them. First of all, bullets in joints or CSF or in the globe of the eye, these you have to remove them. If the bullet is impinging on a nerve or a nerve root, then you have to remove them. If the bullet is within a blood vessel, okay, then you worry about ischemia or actually bullet embolization. Uh, it's rare, but it can happen. And we, we, there are reported cases of bullet that has gone into, the, into a big artery and caused uh, ischemia of the leg, uh, embolus, basically, okay? So uh, these are the indications, the absolute indications. So if, the, if it's next, structure basically and you feel erode into that vital structure the rare indications are lead poisoning which is very very rare very rare or for medical legal examination now medical legal examination you are not you are not forced uh, to go and dig for the bullets uh, and endanger your patient's life in order to remove the bullet but if it's superficial yes you go and remove it but don't go and do a laparotomy to get a bullet to in order to give it for forensic medicine Okay, that's not a good indication for um, removing the bullet. And of course, finally, the other thing is that if you are operating for, for you know, patient comes, comes to the gunshot and you're operating and you find the bullet in front of you, then yes, you remove them. But you don't go fishing for the bullet. You just leave the bullet where it is. Bullets themselves, they don't cause infection. It's actually the debris that go with the bullet. So the clothes that go with the bullet, they, these cause infection. So if you're going to get shot, make sure you remove your clothes. Um, and so remember, do not label the wound entry wound and exit wound. Don't say entry exit in any of your documentation, okay? Because if you have a patient with a gunshot here and a gunshot there, you label this entry and this is exit. That means whoever shot him was in front of the patient, right? So in court, if the, if the accused uh, proves that he was behind the patient, then you just created a, a lot of confusion, okay? So it's not your job to say entry exit. Just write wound here, wound here, wound, just gunshot wound, gunshot wound, gunshot wound. Don't say uh, entry exit. Don't touch the bullets with any metal forceps. Each bullet carries a print from the gun and no gun has the same print as the other gun, just like your fingerprints, okay? As it leaves the gun, there are grooves within the muzzle of the gun. So as bullet leaves the gun, it takes a print with it. So what happens is if they take the bullet, and they suspect a gun, 
they get that gun, they put a, a new bullet in it, and they fire it underwater or in cellulose. And then they get that bullet and compare it to the bullet that you gave them. And then they see the print. If the print is matching, then that is the gun that fired the, that bullet, okay? But if you catch it with, with forceps, metal forceps, you ruin this print, okay? So make sure you don't catch it with metal forceps. And finally, you have to document. That means you get somebody, usually an administrator as a witness, inside the operating room. That witness has to see you moving the bullet and you put it in a container and you give it to him and you document with his full name uh, and position and who are the witnesses. Because what happens in court, they can tell you, oh, that doctor faked, he brought that bullet from his home and is faking and, and he's, he's basically, he wants to frame my client. There are no witnesses that came from that body. Make sure that you have witnesses. Is that clear? Any questions about penetrating injury? No, it won't, it won't cause any uh, damage. It will not cause any complication. You leave the bullet, no problem. It might beep in the airport, but nothing else. Okay? In let exit. There's no exit. No inlet exit. The wound, you just put a dressing on it. You don't have to close it. You just dress it and it will close by itself. You don't suit it closed. Wounds. Okay? Good. Let's move on now for the second survey. We will just go through images now. This is the fun part of the presentation and the last part of the presentation. So this is all my patients. This is a patient who shot himself in the head trying to commit suicide. And you can see, now I can say entry exit, but I'm not going to label it entry exit on, on any document. So this is the entry here. The bullet has traveled through and it exited from the other side uh, across the brain, right? So what happened is that this patient uh, basically did not die, okay? So they don't die if they shoot themselves across the, the brain usually uh, uh, because that is not the right way to commit suicide. If they want to commit suicide properly, they should aim to the, um, to the brain stem. Uh, and sometimes also they, they point upwards and they just get uh, facial injury and uh, frontal lobe injury, but they don't die. So th this patient actually did not die. He was in the ICU for some time and then he went out on the ward. Uh, he eventually uh, developed meningitis and died because of the meningitis, severe meningitis, because of, you, see, you see all the debris inside, um, inside the brain. Uh, and that, that would cause his uh, demise, but not, not the gunshot wound. So he's a, a, a bad... Uh, bad way, he committed suicide in a very bad way. Uh, this is a, a patient, so going down to the eye, this is a patient who has, he is an artist, he was fighting with his uh, friend, who was also an artist. His friend stabbed him in the eye with a paintbrush, uh, and you can see this paintbrush inside the eye. Uh, luckily, the paintbrush went through the lateral campus and, and went inside, so what is under GA, we just pulled the, the uh, brush, and he actually did not lose his eyesight at all, uh, and he, he survived. Uh, so don't fight with artists. This is a patient who was uh, playing, uh, actually watching hockey, not playing hockey, and you see this is in ice hockey, huh? and the ice hockey puck in Canada, um, uh, it's, it, it's a disc-like uh, puck, okay, and it flies directly into the body, okay. Uh, this patient came with a C-spine collar on, and if you don't remove the C-spine collar and examine, uh, you will not see this big uh, bruise here. He actually had a carotid injury because of, uh, of, of this uh, uh, blunt trauma. 
carotid vein, a carotid artery thrombosis. Uh, nothing to do, we just gave him aspirin and kept him for observation, discharged him the next day. Uh, going, stay, staying in the neck, this is a 17-year-old uh, patient was driving with his girlfriend, who was an 18-year-old. Uh, both uh, were not seat belted. They had a, a, a bad car crash, and you can see the uh, C-spine uh, injury with the transection of the cord. Uh, unfortunately, his girlfriend had the same injury, just one level below. So uh, both were actually quadriplegic, very sad. But this is to show you the MRI and the transection of the cord um, uh, of this patient. Uh, this is another patient going down to the chest. He was uh, shot with a bullet in the shoulder. And if you look at the x-ray, you will see that the bullet is in the middle. So you worry that the, the bullet is in the mediastinum. Uh, and, but he was hemodynamically normal. We, we were surprised. Then we took a lateral x-ray, and you can see that the bullet is actually in the subcutaneous plane. But if you do, if you do an, an AP view, you will see that the bullet is in the center. You think it's in the mediastinum. So because it's superficial, we just made a small incision and moved the bullet. Okay. Now, this is a, a patient who was uh, playing uh, martial arts with his brother. And um, he was stabbed here. And this area, we call it the precordial box. It is written down here, precordial box. So from the middle of the, of the clavicle, the other mid-clavicle, across down to the rib cage, to the other side of the rib cage, passing by the nipple, okay? So any, this is called the precordial box, this area here. Any stab wound in the precordial box, you assume that this is a stab wound to the heart until proven otherwise. So how do you rule it otherwise? Stab, huh? not gunshot, stab wound. So if you have a stab wound, you do, you get fast. And remember, one of the views of the fast is to look at the pericardium. Now, if the fast is positive, that means the peri he has pericardial uh, fluid effusion, then you go to the operating room and you do a sternotomy or a lateral thoracotomy. Now, if the fast is negative, you don't stop there, you have to get an echo, okay? Because it's even more detailed. So this patient was actually stabbed and he was hemodynamically normal sitting in the emergency department. The emergency physician put him in a regular bed and called us. I was a trauma fellow in Vancouver. And I went down and I talked to him. He was, he was hemodynamically normal but as a stab wound in the precordial box. We did fast, fast was negative. So I ordered echo. Uh, and when the echo, the cardiologist, of course, I struggled to bring the cardiologist at uh, midnight, but he eventually came did the echo and there was a small fluid increased in the, um, in, the, in the pericardium. So that for me was positive. So I called my consultant and we went. And as Hamoud exactly said, we did a sub-xiphoid window here. And we went under the, the, the sternum, okay? So under the xiphoid, under the sternum, we just uh, bluntly dissected and we found pericardium. We got the pericardium, we incised it, and sure enough, there was a big blood clot inside the pericardium. So we did a sternotomy, and you can see here, there's a wound in the left ventricle, stab wound to the left ventricle. So what happened to this patient? If the stab wound is in the left ventricle, the left ventricle is a thistle. So a blood clot comes and plugs the hole. Now, he would look hemodynamically normal, but if he goes to the ward and coughs, or strains for some reason, 
this blood clot can dislodge and the patient will die immediately. So you really have to have a very high uh, index of suspicion. Fortunately, we repaired this uh, uh, injury. We did a median sternotomy, of course, uh, and we repaired this, uh, this injury and the patient went home after five days. This is a patient who fell, uh, he's a construction worker fell and you can see he got stabbed or on a, a wooden piece. And you can see at the back here, this is a small indentation here. We did a CT scan because he was hemodynamically normal. And we found that this, even though it looks very bad, it actually did not go into the abdominal cavity. It broke um, uh, at the muscle layer and it fragmented. So it came, one, one fragment came here and the other fragment was this one that's sticking out. So to the operating room, we made this opening here. We removed this uh, part and then we made a small opening at the back and removed the other part. This is another uh, uh, gentleman who, as you can see, he's a, a model citizen, a lot of uh, swastikas and tattoos, got stabbed on the right upper quadrant. So stabbed on the right upper quadrant, this patient actually did not require to go to the operating room because the stab was directly into the liver. Um, there was no bowel between the stab. We did the CT scan and we can see the track of the knife going into the liver, so we didn't uh, operate on this case. Um, this is what I'm talking about, the paper clip labeling of the uh, shot wounds. So this patient uh, was growing weed or marijuana in his uh, home. Yeah, minding his own business, George, exactly. So um, uh, he was growing marijuana in, in his home. Somebody jumped his house and shot him. Uh, and we labeled, we put a paper clip and we labeled the entry wound. And if you look at the x-ray, this is the bullet. Uh, now it doesn't show when I put the x-ray here, but actually the, the, the paper clip was here. So you can actually draw the line and see exactly how the bullet has traveled, okay? That is why we always label, so if any stab wound or shot, you put a paper clip before you take x-rays or CT scans so that you can know where the wound is. This is a, another patient who was a gangster who was shot in rectum. Uh, in, in Vancouver, uh, the, the mafia uh, guys, what they do is if you don't pay them, they teach you a lesson by shooting you in the rectum or shooting the, the, the other gangsters in the rectum because they know if you get a rectal injury, you will get a colostomy as a surgery. And colostomy is insulting uh, in the gang, gang, gangsters uh, uh, world. So what they do is they shoot them in the rectum and they shoot them in the thigh or in the foot and then drop them at the emergency department because they don't want them to die. So they drop them in front of the emergency department and they leave because they want, us, they want them to be saved, but with a colostomy. So sure enough, we took this patient to the operating room. There was a rectal injury. Uh, we debrided that rectal injury, we closed it, and we gave him a colostomy, and we, he was shot in his thigh. Um, that was uh, splinted. He had a femur fracture. Um, but we kept him for two weeks in the, in the hospital, and before he goes out, we reverse the colostomy so, uh, so that the gangsters don't tease him about his colostomy. Um, and this is another patient who also uh, an attempted suicide. He jumped uh, from a bridge, but unfortunately they don't jump from the highest point of the bridge. They jump at the beginning of the bridge. So they don't die, they just get fractures, bad, very bad fractures, and you can see here, there's a femur fracture with shortening of the limb, and there is an ankle fracture. This is a typical fracture of a jumper. We call them the jumpers, right? Because they land on their ankle, 
and then the force trans trans transmits vertically and they get this location of the hip okay uh, finally this is a patient who was uh, working with an electric saw and uh, his arm unfortunately went through the electric saw and you can see it was shredded uh, why i put this picture because this patient came and there was no bleeding from that um, uh, amputated limb if there is no bleeding then that is not part of your primary survey okay it looks horrible it looks horrendous but remember in his case the primary survey the survey which should be a b c d don't get distracted by uh, such a horrible injury um, even if it looks uh, very very bad like this this is the rest of his limb unfortunately he lost a lot of uh, bone here and this could not be reattached unfortunately so where is the patient you're done you go to ct scan or x-rays you think about it or you go, if this patient requires operating room icu or to the ward or you transfer to another hospital you always think ahead while you're resuscitating the patient where is this patient going to go if he's going to the operating room you ask somebody to inform the operating room if you're going to the ct scan you ask somebody to make the ct scan ready for this patient okay don't wait until you finish your primary and secondary survey and then think of where you're going to dispose your patient, okay? So in summary, um, you make sure you take a focused history. Remember the five points of monitor, attaching the patient to a monitor, 100% oxygen, two large core IVs, trauma labs, uh, and IV bolus. Um, primary survey, second, and the adjunct to the primary survey. Secondary survey, head to toe, and then you always think of disposing the where you're going to dispose the patient. And finally, you do within the first 48 hours of admission, you have to do a tertiary survey where you examine the patient again from head to toe so that you uh, detect any missed injuries. Now we're done with the lecture. I have four MCQs and I want you guys to, um, to uh, start answering uh, the MCQs. Uh, the first uh, question is, good, everybody's awake. So uh, put it in the poll, please. I don't know if the poll is working. Should I? We have the results. Paul is working, excellent. Good, excellent, we'll see. Good. Uh, so uh, uh, the answer is Etomidate, very good, excellent, very good. So 96%, very good, everybody's awake. Now the next question is, which of the following is true regarding traumatic brain injuries? CPP equals MAP plus ICP, the lucid interval is seen in epidural hematoma. Inotropes are used to lower the IPP. Subdural hematoma has a better prognosis than epidural hematoma. Answer in the poll, please, rather than the chat, so that everybody gets to uh, have the privilege of thinking.
Dr. Hani, you can tell me when you want to share the... Yeah, uh, you, can, you can show the answer now. Excellent. Good. So 91%. Super. So it's CP, CPP equal MAP minus ICP, not plus ICP. And inotropes, we don't use it to lower the ICP. Inotropes, we use it to increase the CPP, remember. But it has nothing to do with the ICP, right? If you cannot lower the ICP, you raise the MAP. So next question. Which of the following? Now, this is a question that I did not teach you today, but uh, I just put it as a... As a something else to, uh, to challenge you. Which of the following is an indication for laparotomy in a hemodynamically normal patient with splenic injury? Hemodynamically normal patient with splenic injury. So drop of hemoglobin from 12 to nine, concomitant liver laceration, concomitant tension pneumothorax, or requirement of transfusion of eight units uh, packed red blood cells in the first 24 hours. Okay, people are thinking. Okay, if uh, everybody has put in the answer, let's see what the answer is. Answer the poll, please. Yes, put in the poll, please. Yes, uh, let's see what the answers are. Okay, so the majority have uh, put uh, the right answer, which is D. Uh, let's go through the uh, the different uh, the different uh, options. So drop of hemoglobin from 12 to 9. So just the mere fact that the patient has dropped hemoglobin does not mean that you take the patient to surgery. Okay, as long as the hemo as long as the patient is hemodynamically normal, then you repeat the hemoglobin every six hours. If it drops, you transfuse the patient. You don't have to take them to surgery as long as they're holding their blood pressure. Okay. And then you measure the hemoglobin afterwards. If they drop again, then you transfuse them. The question is, how long are you going to transfuse them? So the rule is, if they require more than six units of transfusion per day, per 24 hours, then they need surgery or angioembolization or whatever you want to take them to, but they need surgery, okay? Uh, now, concomitant liver laceration has nothing to do with the indication to go to the operating room. And again, tension pneumothorax has nothing to do with taking the patient to the operating room. So when do you operate on a splenic injury? First of all, is hemodynamically abnormal patient. So if he's hemodynamically abnormal, then you, also, you would not take him to CT scan anyways, right? Because he's hemodynamically abnormal. But let's say he was hemodynamically normal. You take the patient to CT scan, you find splenic laceration. So you observe the patient. When do you end your observation? When do you take this patient, stop observing and you take the patient to surgery? If the patient drops blood pressure, if the patient requires a lot of blood transfusion, or if the patient develops peritonitis, that means there's another cause of, uh, of intraperitoneal injury, or if the CT scan shows active extravasation of blood, even if the patient's hemodynamically normal and there's active extravasation from the spleen, then you take the patient to angio and you embolize the, the, the spleen. If you don't have angioembolization in your hospital, then the patient should go for surgery. I hope it's clear. Now the final question, which of the following is an absolute indication to remove a bullet from a trauma patient? If the patient is in shock, uh, if the, the patient forensics is required, requiring the bullet, asking you for the bullet. If the bullet is in the liver, 
or if the bullet is in the knee joint. Okay, let's see the results. Excellent, excellent. So uh, if the bullet is in the joint, yes. So in the liver, it has nothing to do with that. Forensic requirement, we said it's a rare indication. It's not an absolute indication, okay? We said an absolute indication. If the patient is in shock, it requires surgery, but not necessarily to remove the bullet. And the patient is in shock, requires surgery to stop the bleeding rather than to remove the bullet, okay? So we have to differentiate between removing the bullet and surgery, okay? So if it's in the joint or CSF or in the globe, remember? This is the last slide. Thank you very much. And uh, uh, let's see uh, if you have any questions in the question and answers. Thank you, Dr. Hani. Thank you for this wonderful, beneficial session. Actually, it was very interactive and interesting. I was very excited that I want to take my exam again. Uh, I think that, unfortunately, <laughs> we don't have enough time to take a lot of questions, but if you are okay, Perfect. we can take like three questions. And I would like to give Yeah, I don't for, mind. Yeah, okay. We'll give chance for people who uh, would like to ask the question verbally. So please, anyone who has a, a question can raise a thumb and I will unmute their mic so that they can have, uh, they, can, uh, they, they can ask questions. I have uh, Dr. Hassan. I will unmute you now. You can ask your question. Yes. Okay, so. Thank you. Yes, Dr. Hassan, I think he's still muted. Yeah, yes, no, no. Okay. he's still muted. Sorry. Yes, now unmuted. Good. Alain, Dr. Hassan. I don't know, Dr. Hassan, are you hearing us? You can now ask your question. You need to unmute. Yeah. Well, I think he's unmuted, he but unmuted. Uh, I don't know why he's not. Uh... Okay, so let's take another question. Dr. Faisal Al-Hajri. Dr. Faisal has to unmute your mic first. Okay, it's not working. Thank you, thank you guys, thank you. Thank you all for all your comments on the chat. Uh, can they just, can they print? Okay, for some reason they're muted still. I can see Faisal is muted and Hassan is muted for some reason. No, I have unmuted them from my system. I don't know why they still are. Faisal and uh, Hassan, try to unmute yourself. You can unmute yourself on the on the app. He's muted. Unmute. 
Somebody says he has a written question. Can they write it in the, uh, in the chat? Yeah, of course they can write, but because we have so many questions, so I prefer to give chance for people oh, who yeah. share their questions verbally. So if it's not working, then it's up to you, Dr. Hani, if you want to take a questions in the question and answer panel. Yeah, I would, I would, love, I would, love, I would love to hear their voice, but uh, if not, we can just take a question and answer. Uh, okay, that's fine. Uh, where is it? It's not showing with me here. You have the question and answer panel at, at the bottom, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm pressing it, but nothing is opening for some reason. Okay. Can you see them now? Uh, let, me, let me press again. Uh, okay, wh why, don't, uh, why don't you guys type it in the chat? That would be easier and faster. Uh, Hassan or Faisal or anybody who has a question will take like three or four questions. Regarding the ABCD sequence, at which circumstance we can skip to one to the other? Like if we go from B, don't skip, don't skip, go A, B, C, D, E, okay? Um, if the patient is uh, exsanguinating from uh, bleeding, you can ask somebody to, to apply pressure until you, you, uh, you see the, you fix, you, uh, you fix the A and the B and then address the C. Um, now, it doesn't mean that if you decide to intubate, you're going to leave the patient to bleed until you intubate the patient. No, you make the decision to intubate, you ask people to prepare your, the, your, the intubation set, then you can go and address the B and the C but uh, always try to, to stay in sequence. Of course, if the patient is like, you know, if you, if, you, if, you, if you can't, if you're the only one, you have no help, then you can change your, your priority to stop the bleeding and then go and fix E. But don't, don't, don't uh, in general, we try not to skip the, the, the sequence of, uh, of events. Regarding tension pneumothorax with 32 French tube, is still evidence of pneumothorax. What is the next step? So it's either that your tube is not in the, in the right position. Um, uh, so uh, get a chest X-ray. If, uh, if, if the tube is in the right position, then you can either put another chest tube uh, or uh, replace this chest tube with, with another. Like we can put two chest tubes or you can just replace this tube. Uh, make sure that the tube is oscillating and it's in the right place. Because sometimes the tube goes into in, intraparenchymal uh, and it does not drain your pneumothorax. Uh, steroids, we don't do steroids for brain edema. It has no uh, role at all in brain edema. Uh, hyperventilation for ICP reduction. Uh, you just keep the, IC, the PCO2 between 30 and 34 uh, all through, all through your resuscitation and all through until the patient goes to the ICU. Uh, uh, what are the indications of one to one to one? Always, always. Transfusion is one to one to one. You transfuse blood, platelets, and FFP. Uh, inpatient management should be, should we start thrombo? Yes, thromboembolism prophylaxis, we always start it in patients unless they are bleeding. So if they have like a splenic laceration, liver laceration, or uh, intracranial bleeding, we don't do that. Don't uh, start them on thrombo prophylaxis, but we put them on pneumatic compression stocking. And if there is very high risk of DVT and pulmonary embolism, you can actually put a, an, an intravenous cat, uh, catheter, a vena caval catheter. Uh, we call it uh, like the, the umbrella, the filter, in a IVC filter. Okay. Uh, I think 
ستيرويدز خلاص جاوبناها indications of splenectomy we said it at the helmet and trauma case remove it in the emergency department before you start your resuscitation remove the helmet in the emergency before you start your resuscitation to examine the airway properly and there are ways different special ways to remove the helmet that is part of the ATLS I advise you all guys to go and get the ATLS certified okay uh, second intercostal space, you can do it, but uh, they proved with CT scan that um, a lot of the needles that go through the second intercostal space, especially in women, because of the breast, they can't, they does not actually go into the, into the chest cavity. So they found that this is an, an easier access to the, um, to the, to the, to the pleural cavity. Okay. Uh, uh, what is the role of hypotensive resuscitation in trauma? So we do, hypotensive resuscitation is very, very, uh, you have to be very careful what we call hypotensive resuscitation. So basically you want to maintain the blood pressure at around 90 to 100 systolic. This is in penetrating trauma, okay? You try because you don't want to pump the blood pressure too high that it will dislodge any clot in the artery, okay? Uh, that means you don't have to give the patient a lot of volume to reach a systolic of 120 or 140. Um, so that, that is hypotensive resuscitation. But you know, be careful of, what, of, of, of when you do it because uh, <clears throat> you, it should not stay for a long time. It is just a bridge to go and operate on the patient and fix the bleeding. Indication to insert bilateral chest tube. Uh, so basically, if you have a patient with a gunshot wound and the patient is crashing and you don't have any, uh, you don't have time to assess the chest and the abdomen. You put bilateral chest tube, you take the patient, and you do a laparotomy, um, depending on what you see on the chest tube. If the chest tube is draining a liter of blood, you, of course, you have to do a fa fast. If the patient is draining a liter of blood and the fast is negative, then you start with the chest. If the patient is not draining a lot of blood uh, and the fast is positive, then you start with the abdomen. If you have a lot of blood from the chest and the fast is positive, so both abdomen and chest are positive, you start with the abdomen as well. You don't start with the chest. So you put bilateral chest tube if you're not if you if you don't have time to assess the chest for hemothorax or pneumothorax. You just put bilateral chest tube, and usually in patients who come with penetrating injury and they're hemodynamically abnormal, there's no time to assess. Okay, indication of Reboa. Uh, so Reboa is now is not really uh, full fledged use. Uh, it's only in very select centers, uh, all through. Uh, but it's very promising, uh, and basically we use it uh, to, to, to arrest bleeding, in, usually in, 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 in severe penetrating injury. Uh, but uh, uh, there is a lot of, uh, of uh, requirements before you start Reboa. Uh, it's, it's another session that if you, if you, you know, it's going to take us a long time to speak about Reboa. Uh, is there a time in the lecture? Traumatic body organ. Okay, so I'll, I'll leave that to the uh, to the to the uh, to the uh, to the organizers. Um, is there a time blunt and penetrating? So we'll we'll arrange with the with the with the organizers. I'm sure they have other trauma surgeons in line, uh, but I'm I'm available if you ever need anything. So thank you very very much. Thank you, Dr. Hani. I really wish that we can take uh, many more questions, but actually we run out of time. Thank you for your precious time and for accepting your, our invitation. Uh, I'm sure that we will have you another time with us again. Uh, 
for everyone who is asking about the certificate, yes, there will be a certificate. It should buy Kuwait Association of Surgeons. It will be sent to you through emails within a couple of days. And this lecture is recorded. Inshallah, it will be uh, available as a playback uh, in the future for your reference. Thank you, everyone. And thank you, Dr. Hani. Thank you, uh, Dr. Shaima and Dr. Salman and uh, uh, the people behind the scenes, uh, Dr. Lulwa and Dr. Mohammed, uh, for everything. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Hani.